0: The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.
1: The CT cornea angiography part was completely blinded for the duration of the study, which gave us this unique opportunity to have spontaneous natural history observations of what happened to these individuals.
2: Features an article titled Subclinical Coronary Atherosclerosis and Risk for Myocardial Infarction in a Danish Cohort. Our guest is the first author, Klaus Kofud, who is the managing director of the Department of Cardiology at Riggs Hospitalet in Denmark. We hope that you learn quite a bit uh, from this podcast. Klaus, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was really struck by your study and what the implications of it might be, and so we really appreciate you coming on the podcast to discuss it. So first of all, why don't you describe the overall study, uh, and then we can get into some of the details and try to understand how to apply that in the real world.
1: Great. Thank you, Bob, and uh, I'm very happy to be on, on the podcast here so, just uh, to summarize the, the general outline of the of the study, around 2010, here at Copenhagen at Rig's uh, University Hospital, we had access to a very nice equipment that could do non-invasive cornea angiography in 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 people with very low radiation dose, and so the the idea idea came up that that would be a great opportunity to try and understand better the natural history of corneal sclerosis. And at the same time, I was connected to two of my senior professors, Dr. Nordiskag and Dr. Kerber, and both of them encouraged me to enter um, this study where we, in the ongoing uh, Copenhagen Genome Population Study, I guess it's similar to some of the U.S., uh, Framingham or um, MESA studies where healthy people are suggested to be part of a, a great population study with research observational data. And so they were invited to have a coronary CT on our new equipment, and that was started in 2010. And initially, I, I, I didn't find it you know, likely that we would get a large number of patients or, a, or not patients, but people from the background population. But as it turned out, there was a huge interest. So in the coming years, we've been scanning between 1,000 and 2,000 people every year. And the uniqueness of, of, of the study was that at the time, I, I didn't really understand that. But our ethical committee, they said, yes, you can do this, but you should not cause any undue anxiety. So we were not permitted to give any reporting on the cardiac reading. Obviously, if we found lung cancer or other well-recognized, really serious illnesses on on the CTs, uh, we reported that. But for for the CT on the heart, at the time, the knowledge on how to react, what to use that for, was so kind of vague that the ethical committee kind of mandated that we were not allowed to report. So they were completely blinded, the CT angiography part, I mean the CT cornea angiography part was completely blinded for the duration of the study, which kind of gave us this unique opportunity to have spontaneous kind of natural history observations of what happened to these individuals. We had then from registry data, we were able to track what happened to these individuals, almost 10,000 people that were scanned in terms of uh, whether they died, whether they had myocardial infarction, and also other uh, aspects of of the vascular domain, meaning whether they had revascularization. And so we uh, looked at not just to look at whether they had coronary artery disease not being manifested clinically, but um, in fact, what type of subclinical coronary artery disease that they had. And there it became very, very interesting because we were able to kind of characterize the type of coronary artery disease that was subclinical or latent, you you might say, and then see what type of um, coronary artery artery disease had the highest risk of subsequent clinical manifestation in terms of especially myocardial infarction. And, and that was basically the idea. You can say that there are many ramifications or there are many relevant aspects of this. On top, of course, just the the basic science understanding of this disease, what are the characteristics of it, how frequent is it, even before clinical manifestation, and, of course, what would later on manifest as a truly feared uh, complication, such as myocardial infarction. And, of course, those large part of, of of the... The study we feel is of high impact on what clinical practice you might want to adjust for following the findings that we have. So, but I guess that's basically the outline of the study, and and and, and uh, maybe we can dig deeper into more details uh, on a later point. But but I think that's that's a big or very quick summary of this of the the format of the study.
2: Yeah. And that's really exciting. So you started doing the CT angios in 2010. Yes. And, and then you did follow up to see if they had a myocardial infarction, if they yes. had to have a stent, something like that. And, and both the physicians and the patients were blinded. So you had these data and then you found out what happened to them. How long after the coronary angiogram do you have data? Where did you start analyzing? At, at what point?
1: That's a great question. We uh, intended to do the follow-up when we reached a the magic number of our ten thousand individuals. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the data, uh, the follow-up data, uh, for obvious reasons, we couldn't ask them individually. So that was from registry data. And so, what defined the follow-up time was that we reached the ten thousand people. Some of them, you know, were not you know on the on the paper there are in the flow chart but we ended up with less a little, little less than than mm-hmm. 10,000 and the second thing is the follow up time was defined by when we were allowed to have extracted outcome data from the registry and that turned out to be approx between 3 and 4 years which is not that hugely long mm-hmm. but it gives you the impression that this kind of is a short term signal that we're looking at. Obviously, we will continue um, to extract outcome data, but as it turned out, there was a very clear signal already after these four years and, and three to four years. And so we decided to move on and, 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 and publish this, these very interesting results.
2: So in order to really understand the study, you have to understand the different categories of the CT angio. So if you could go over those categories in a way that general interns like myself can understand. I will make a go on this. <laughs> of course, when you do
1: CT angiography, you get an image of all the coronary vessels. So you have these three main vessels, you could say. And of course, one frequent group is that you see no disease that all, the vessels look smooth. But going from there, you can have smaller amounts of atherosclerotic plaque somewhere uh, to the full range of having it in all uh, portions of the vessels. And sometimes the, the disease you see is so excessive that it's called obstructive, meaning that it takes more, it fills up more than the luminous diameter, more than 50% of the luminous diameter. So you have three groups in in, in, in principle. You have no disease, you have slight uh, disease that's non obstructive, and then you have obstructive disease. For the Slight disease, non-obstructive. It can be just one vessel, or just one segment in a vessel, or it can be the whole vessel. So, therefore, the non-obstructive part, it can be just one of the vessels that are affected, or it can be all vessels. So, there is kind of a magnitude of involvement in the entire coronary tree that also were assessed. So, we have extensive estimate, estimates of extensive. That's very simple. We have. Um, All the vessels are divided into 17 vascular segments. And if you had more than five, it was termed extensive. If it was less than five, it was was non extensive. So we had some grading there and were for the obstructive. Of course, that could also entail one or more vessels, but for the simplicity of it, any patient or individual that had more than 50% were kind of categorized as having an obstructive type of disease. And then and these more complex things, of course, are delineated in the paper, yeah.
2: And 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 for the listeners, if you really want to visualize this, uh, their figure one on the third page of the article, Uh, really has a beautiful picture of uh, what Klaus just explained to us. So now we have these categories, we have no, no disease. Uh, We have the non-obstructive, non, non non-extensive, non-obstructive, extensive, obstructive, uh, non-extensive, and obstructive, extensive. So we have all those categories. What happened to the patients? So what, what are the, what is the main, the main result? Then we'll get down to some of the details.
1: The main result was, based on the categories that you, you just delineated, is that the highest risk of having a cube myocardial infarction, we found individuals that had an one location with an obstructive coronary lesion. Had they also had more than five segments with disease, regardless of whether that was explored or not, those two types of lesions were associated with the highest risk of having acute myocardial infarction. One interesting aspect of the obstructive part was that we would have thought that that the risk was highest depending on the location in the vascular tree. But as it turned out, just having one was just enough to have a high risk regardless of where it was sitting in the whole vascular tree. So it just tells you that You should not have obstructive disease because that's dangerous, basically.
2: Let's go over some of the things that I really like to point out to people and and have us discuss a little bit is, let's talk about the uh, table one, which is the clinical characteristics of the study cohort. Who are the patients?
1: And in table one, it's shown that it was nearly 50-50 men and women. They were mean age, about 60, and they had... Well, not so many people that were overweight or obese, but at least most of, some of them were some of them had hypertension around also half of them. Very few diabetics uh, only around ten percent had were smokers, and most of them were not on any prophylactic medication. Most of them were middle to high income people so. And, and I guess what this reflects is that, at least in Denmark, in the population studies, the the people that are responding to this offer to be you know, having this this test or participating in research, they are not the ones that are you know, the the most worse off. Not the ones with you know. Lower income, higher PMI, poor lifestyle, and all of these other aspects. So, I think it's it's um it's fair to say that it's it's the upper most well you know conducting people of of the population, and I guess that's also even you know further emphasizes the the implications of our of our study. That not that I can't speculate, but I would. I would I would think that um, the signal that we found in these reasonably healthy people was so clear that it it probably will be even more pronounced if if you you know target people that we probably would feel would have a greater need for intervention. I guess that's that's um, a fair yeah. statement. Is there anything else you want me to discuss on this, or no?
2: And 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 I I, I think one of the issues here is these are people who volunteered to be in this kind of a study which is a different group of people than many of the patients that you and I see indeed indeed and i mean that's that's uh, um
1: this is as i said most of the, my previous research hasn't been on this epidemiological level so my senior professors have told me that that's actually a frequent finding in many types of population studies that although we would want to have a more representative group of people that are as you say the ones that we actually see in the clinic mm-hmm. normally these these uh, population studies mainly tend to recruit the well the the upper you know most well off people that are having the um, you know the extra energy to participate, and not so much the ones we would we truly want to to extract from from the population. Yeah. This is a normal finding for many population studies, I guess.
2: The, uh, on uh, Figure three, which is uh, the adjusted five-year probabilities and risk differences for myocardial infarction, I was really impressed by those four categories when you had both obstructive and extensive. How high the mean relative risk is. Maybe you could just comment a little bit on location. Didn't seem to matter quite as much as the extent.
1: That's a great point, and 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 the 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 figure three, especially the bottom, where we have these four uh, types of combined groups of of where they are categorized either in terms of their how many coronary segments or extensive the disease was, uh, and also if they had obstructive or not. And, and what there seems to be is a quite clear signal that the more extensive and the more obstructive disease you find, the higher the risk is for acute myocardial infarction. And obviously the Very highest risk is seen if you have an obstructive disease, uh, regardless of whether you also have extensive disease. And this, it it just lends you, uh, it just gives you some idea of how important it is when you try to assess risks that you cannot just look at one segment or one part of, of a coronary vascular tree. You need to have an idea of how extensive is it, and if this, if, if not just extensiveness, but also the, the level of obstruction in any epicardial disease, uh, epicardial vessel. So this complexity was something that we th- f- try to make operational by having these four groups, and I, I think we we we, we got a, actually a quite good results to to. to understand what, what are the implications of different characteristics of this uh, very you know, complex disease?
2: So in the worst group, the obstructive extensive group, the adjusted five-year probability of them having a myocardial infarction was around, around 5%. Now, yeah. some people would say that's really low, but that's only the five-year probability. And if this were extended out to 10, 15, 20 years, I would think that that would just uh, increase dramatically. So now that you analyze the data and sort of understand uh, what, what the real risk is from doing this, how is that affecting how you think about the use of coronary angiography and is it being used uh, in a preventive way? Where do you think this field is going?
1: That's a great question, and of course, um, I've I've been into science many years, and and I'm so I'm kind of a careful person not to over conclude on these observations. And to the for the for the short term, we've designed a study which is called the Danehart study, where we will do a randomized trial based on what the CT findings are in these groups, and then intervene. Based on that, as compared to what is used in Europe, the score two, which is kind of, well, some people think that score two, is a, which is a rich score for healthy people, they think it's very good. Others think that it's kind of flip of a coin. I guess I would put my money on. That the CT would be about much better guidance to who needs uh, aggressive um, preventive treatment, and that's kind of the the essence of the Dan trial that we just started now is a randomized trial. So, that, but that will be a while before we have the results of that trial. It'll Probably five, six years or something. But, but we just start, launched it, and, and I think it'll be very ex- ex- exciting. On right now, how should we kind of you know put this into work in 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 the clinical setting. And I, I haven't really made my mind up, but obviously a lot of patients have CT for other reasons, also in the cardiac domain or non-cardiac domain. And I, I would think that if you see extensive disease or if you see obstructive disease, I think it would be reasonable to you know, inform the patient and then have them referred for a preventive um, cardiovascular treatment clinic but of course this is kind of well this this becomes a little political little, little little difficult because and of course also d- demanding because if you say refer a patient for control of the ascending auto size they have absolutely no problems with um, skimming heart disease and then you pick up that there is something on the coronaries being able to you know use that in a standard clinical way, it of course would require some uh, standard operating procedure changes or clinical practice. And, and I wouldn't be the right person to sign, kind of say, this This is something you should do tomorrow. But on the other hand, the, the data is out there. And, and if you actually are able to see this for other reasons, it probably will be difficult just to go, oh, I, I don't care because, that, because the, the indication for the CT was something else. Does it make sense? or?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would be thinking that, especially in patients with strong family histories, uh, especially those patients who are very worried this might be a reasonable thing if they're on the borderline of whether they want to be on a statin or not. This might give us some more information that say, yeah, you already have disease and we know that that predicts something. Mm. Let's do all the preventive things we can possibly do. I would say that
1: that would be a very reasonable and, and pragmatic approach here. And and of course, one thing that's kind of the, the, the focus of, of, of our, our study is as of now, we actually don't know if a C G guided or supported uh, prevented strategy is better than what's already been done. I think most physicians will feel that that's very likely that that would be the case, but mm-hmm. the data is not there, But Waiting for that, I guess, for on a case by case basis, I would certainly do what you just suggested that a pragmatic approach would be that if the data is there, you should most likely use it. Yeah.
2: And in finishing, very uh, kindly talked about the limitations of the study. And maybe you could share that uh, with, uh, with the audience. Uh, I guess there
1: were some scientific uh, limitations that maybe not so super relevant, but of course for for general for general understanding of how this can be translated, we only had uh, white people in the study, so we don't we can't make any statements on on uh, non-white people. As I said, it's kind of the the higher income people that are may, may, medium to higher income people. So so. That's where we can state ourselves on this. On the survival, we would have loved to have cardiovascular death, but somehow the registries weren't able to provide that. But we will look deeper into this and, and hopefully we'll have a more, even more differentiated understanding of what it means when you have a CT angiography in and, and, and an apparently healthy person and then give even more nuanced um, um, advice on how to
2: understand what, what is on, on, on such a CT. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I think that this is a most interesting study, and uh, at least in the U.S., uh, general internists are the ones who are taking care of these people, and uh, having a better understanding of where this field seems to be going really helps me. So thanks again. Robert, Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting study demonstrates that coronary artery CT can show subclinical lesions that predict the probability of future clinical coronary artery disease. Exactly what to do with this information is still unclear as our guest made very explicit. It's interesting that the authors are currently doing an RCT to determine if these patients would benefit from presumptive treatment to hopefully prevent the progression of coronary artery disease. We hope that you better understand uh, CT coronary angiography uh, after listening to this podcast. Thank you for being a listener.
0: Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.